You are entering the Freedom Hut. America, let's open up. Plus, Wisconsin cops will put you on the naughty list. The plot against General Flynn. Is Biden ever going to personally speak out on the sexual assault claims against him? We've hit 30 million unemployment claims. And should exercise outdoors include a mask? Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I think I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. This came from us blind. We never knew we had the greatest economy ever in the world, in the history of the world. We had the best economy. I say it openly. Nobody even challenges it. And they would if they thought I was wrong. We had the best economy ever. And we're going to have it again. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. There you have the president talking about what was and what he says will be again. We will get to that place where we have a rocking economy, things going very well uh, for business, for individuals. Some optimism. We need optimism these days. It's uh, grinding us down, isn't it? It's getting a little tough out there on these lockdowns. It's a question that we're going to keep revisiting. When are we going to reopen? How fast can we reopen? And was all of this really worth it? Was all of this something that we should have uh, put ourselves through? And if so, I, will, I want to see the data. Because so far, the data that I'm seeing suggests that it was not. Now, look, there's some tough new information. There's some tough new data uh, specifically about jobs. You've got an additional 3.8 million more people sought jobless benefits, and I'll, I'll talk to you a bit about that. We've also got some bombshell stuff last night uh, that I wanted to begin with today, uh, where General Flynn, I mean, the, the move against General Flynn is beyond any reasonable doubt, something that you could refer to now as a, a deep state ambush of the Trump administration national security advisor that used the worst kinds of behind-the-scenes FBI abuse of the system, of their discretion, that relied on dishonorable, disreputable tactics from people that are partisans. And now this new information is just confirming what many of us have thought all along. And, and I think that's really important for us here. I think we need to take stock on this issue of General Flynn, of who was right, who was wrong, and why did they get it so wrong? Um, those who have been skeptical of the case against General Flynn from day one and been calling it an evil, politically motivated injustice were right. Meanwhile, the multi-billion dollar media apparatus that defamed and tried to ruin Flynn out of partisan spite were wrong. Never forget that. Never forget that those of you who have been listening to me talk about General Flynn for the last three years, to, about his case, about what was done to him, uh, I've been right at every stage. CNN, The New York Times, MSNBC, The New York Post, and all the assorted liberal outlets out there, they were wrong. They've been lying to their audiences. They've been misrepresenting what happened. They've been putting stupid analysts on TV and, and running their columns running their analysis in various platforms that now is just completely indefensible. I mean, it was always wrong, but 
at this point, they should be offering up apologies. And that will not that will not happen. Um, The unbelievable corruption and underhanded partisan tactics that the FBI and DOJ engaged in against Flynn and Trump's campaign, it should be noted, happened on Obama's watch and are ultimately Obama's responsibility. Libs can try to obfuscate this all day, but it's a fact. It was Obama's team on his watch taking this action against the presidential transition. What a bunch of petty, spiteful, insidious garbage this was. Your team loses, and so you make sure that the team that gets to take the field is not able to have the full benefit of their victory? You, you do this on the way out the door? Disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. And there's no way at this point, there's no way for anyone to explain this as an act of, of a mistake or as, as good faith gone awry. No, we, we see, and, and I, will, I will take you through the latest information here on this. We see what really happened. Uh, the Justice Department has had to turn over documents, and this is all because Sidney Powell, this, this lawyer who has taken up General Flynn's cause, she saw what she saw what happened here. And she's like, I- I'm not allowing this. You know, Flynn originally went to Covington and Burling. Uh, that was the firm that he went to represent him. And it's funny, actually used to live like across the street from their office. And he he did this uh, thinking that they were going to represent his best interest. Now it looks like they had a massive conflict of interest. And they were not acting on his behalf in ways that they should have. Here's the here's the quick review of what happened here. General Flynn, the National Security Advisor, former DIA director and 30 plus year military veteran. Uh, He had a couple of FBI guys sent to talk to him after there was a news story about a conversation that he had. Someone leaked a conversation that he had with uh, the ambassador, the criminal leak, by the way, and this person, whoever leaked it, should go to prison. They should sit in a cell. They should go to prison for this. You, you're not allowed to do this. Not allowed to play games with secret information in this way. Someone in the government betrayed their oath and broke the law. They should go to prison. It's not General Flynn. So this leak happened to Ignatius, the Washington Post, and then the FBI guys decided that they because, you know, initially Flynn was denying it. And look, maybe Flynn kind of forgot what he said to the, you know, he didn't have the transcript of the conversation, but he said, no, you know, he, he denied it. And then they, they figured that they were going to go and get him. That was, some of you will recall from, from Ghostbusters when they see the first ghost in the, in the New York Public Library and, you know, they go, stay close, stay close, get her. And that's their whole plan, you know, and afterwards Bill Murray's kind of laughing. That was your whole plan, get her. Um, get Flynn was the plan. That was all this was. There was no reason. There was no real crime. There was no investigation. And we remember from James Comey that they were taking advantage of an administration in, in change, in flux. You know, the, the transition is underway and they were taking advantage of that for partisan purposes. So you have a, a new presidential team coming in with Obviously, tremendous responsibility, a lot of authority, a lot of power, representing the interests of the American people, duly elected in 2016, despite all the whining and crying from libs. Who should cry more? Cry more, libs, please. 
uh, you know, you're going to be, oh man, I certainly, I, the, the party that I'm going to throw, I don't care if it's a party for one, but the party that I'm going to have if Trump wins re-election this fall, man, we, we are going to go, we are going to go jet skiing in a lake of liberal tears if Trump wins. And I, I still think there's a very good chance he will. But anyway, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So they send in, they send in these two FBI agents. And now we have notes about the thought processes, uh, thought processes around this. Here's what uh, how Fox News breaks it down. Handwritten notes uh, by the FBI's former head of counterintelligence, Bill Priestap, after a meeting with then FBI Director James Comey and then FBI Director Andrew McCabe, suggested the agents planned to get Flynn to admit to breaking the Logan Act in the alternative when he spoke to then Russian Ambassador Sergei Kizilyak during the presidential transition period. What is our goal? One of the notes read truth admission or get him to lie so we can prosecute him or get him fired. If we get him to admit to breaking the Logan Act, give facts to DOJ and have them decide. Another note read constitutional law. Professor Jonathan Turley called the documents implications chilling folks. This is exactly what I have been telling you all along. They did here. They they created a, com- a completely absurd pretext, an absurd pretext to bring a ridiculous charge or, or, or to create a ridiculous criminal predicate that it, no one really thinks this is a crime. This is Kafkaesque. I mean, this is Soviet style abuse of the law by pretending that there's nothing in the law that has to make any sense whatsoever by misinterpreting it and misapplying it for political purposes. This is a disgrace. James Comey should be in prison. Andrew McCabe should be in prison. McCabe should definitely be in prison for lying under oath. They just gave him a pass on this because they didn't want to hurt morale inside these institutions. Let me tell you something. The FBI is not going to be able to live this down for a long time. Anytime there's a political a political edge to an investigation that's going on with the DOJ and the FBI now, people are rightly going to ask a whole lot of questions. Is this on the up and up? Is this a bunch of deep state libs taking out their aggression on somebody that they don't like politically? That's what Peter Strzok did. That's what Lisa Page did and Comey and McCabe. They were every bit as bad as we said they were. Every bit. And if you're wondering what was Comey's role in this, Comey thinks he's a hero for this. I mean, he, he is truly a sociopath. I mean, Comey's got real problems. This guy's a loon. He was the FBI director, folks. He was a U.S. attorney sending people to prison for a long time, making the determinations about who gets charged and who doesn't. This guy is a sanctimonious, self-righteous loon. And he was at the very top of the United States law enforcement apparatus. After the attorney general, arguably the most powerful law enforcement figure in the country. And we think this is okay. Of course not. But he's going to he's going to skate. He's got a seven figure book deal and he's going around giving speeches. And here's what he said about his role in all of this. Play 17. I sent them. Um, um, something we I probably wouldn't have done or maybe gotten away with in a more organized investigation, a more organized administration in the George W. Bush administration, for example, or the Obama administration. <laughs> The protocol, two men that all of us have 
perhaps increased appreciation for uh, over the last two years. <laughs> and in both of those administrations, there was process. And so if the FBI wanted to send agents into the White House itself to interview a senior official, you would work through the White House counsel, and there'd be discussions and approvals and who would be there. And I thought, it's early enough. Let's just send a couple guys over. <laughs> and so uh, we placed a call to Flynn, said, hey, we're sending a couple guys over. Uh, hope you'll talk to them. He said, sure. Nobody else was there. They interviewed him in a conference room at the White House Situation Room, and he lied to them. And that's what he's now pled guilty to. First of all, it's pleaded guilty, which you would think the FBI director would know the proper terminology. Uh, and beyond that, he used, he exploited the disarray and the frenzied nature of a presidential transition for a political hit. That's what this was. It was a political hit. And notice, uh, you know, look, the, look, the FBI's got big problems here, folks. This is not going to just go away. Current FBI director Chris Ray doesn't look like he is willing to wash the dirty laundry properly within his own institution. You know, the CIA rightfully got pounded, pounded in the public's eyes for 9-11 and then for the Iraq WMD debacle. OK, my old agency got absolutely crushed in the, in the public's mind for those two. Now, the CIA, I mean, the uh, 9-11 thing was intelligence community wide. So that was more diffuse anger, but it was certainly a failure at the CIA. It was actually really in a lot of ways a bigger failure at the FBI. But conversation for another time. Uh, and then the Iraq WMD thing, which really was blamed on Bush, but the CIA should have done better. That's just the truth. Uh, now we have the FBI which is much more concerning to us than the CIA because CIA doesn't have law enforcement powers here. CIA can't show up, take you out of the shower in front of your family at gunpoint and lock you in a cell. CIA actually can't do that in this country. They won't do that in this country. FBI can. Just ask Roger Stone. They'll send 30 guys with long guns and tack gear on while you're having tea with your wife in your silk pajamas, watching reruns of The Price is Right, and they'll make sure that they come at 5 o'clock in the morning and that CNN is there. Oh, yeah, because they got lucky. Remember that whole thing? CNN's a bunch of liars. These people have lost it, my friends. They can't go back and reclaim their honor because they don't have any and they don't care. We'll get into the media angle of this in a second, but this is the deep state. This is real. We have proof. We've had proof for a long time, but this is even more. This is smoking gun. The Logan Act? You're going to have a conversation with the incoming National Security Advisor about the Logan Act? The guy's allowed to talk to people. First of all, the Logan Act is unconstitutional. Start with that. How could you even apply this? It's unconstitutionally vague and unconstitutionally broad, and no one ever charges it, so that's why it hasn't gotten overturned. But they decided they were going to just try to dust this one off you show me the man, I'll show you the crime. That was Lavrenti Beria of the Soviet secret police. That's what they're doing here. That's the approach. And now there's no question about it. Flynn should not only be pardoned, people that were a part of this should be run out of the public square and should serve prison time. And you don't hear me say, I'm not somebody who says, oh, people should go to jail for this or that. You know, some of the Benghazi stuff, for example, from the Obama administration, that was incompetence. It was it was indifference. It was stupidity. But you're not you can't send people to jail for being morons or else a lot more politicians would be in jail. 
This, though, this is malice. This is abuse of power. This is ruining lives. There needs to be justice for this. We cannot allow this to stand. They went after one of the top White House officials of an incoming administration to settle a pro-Hillary vendetta. That's what this was. And also because all these people in D.C. that have been working there for decades and have reached the highest levels of of the bureaucracy, they think they're so much more clever and important than they are. And let me tell you, they're overwhelmingly, deeply unimpressive. The people who work day to day in these places, some of them are fantastic. Some of them are bumps on a log. They're worthless. But some of them are fantastic. I've, I've known both. The people that rise to the top, though, especially in a Democrat administration. Remember, Obama appointed Comey. The people that rise to the top, bureaucracies like this, Brennan, Comey, McCabe, they're just all pretending, and they hope the people don't find out that they're really just frauds. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I mentioned before the media's role in all this uh, as they were celebrating the destruction of General Flynn after all the time that he had served his country, after all the good that he had done for this nation. I just want to remind everyone that whether it's General Flynn, Justice Kavanaugh, Nicholas Sandman of the uh, Covington High School, liberal journos are willing to set these people up with lies and then pounce on them like hyenas with no regard for the lives and families that they ruin. And do you ever see the journos apologize? Do you ever see these journalists who run with these stories and then put analysts on to amplify the stories by filling in what they don't have facts on so far, even if the facts are initially wrong, with their own supposition? Do you ever see the journos go on TV and say, we were wrong about this one? General Flynn was set up. I'm sorry, America. Do you ever see that? No, you don't. And yet, do you ever see... On the other side, people that are destroyed by conservatives and then it turns out they were entirely innocent. No. What names come to mind? Jussie Smollett? Oh, that's right. He wasn't innocent at all. He's a total fraud. Journalists in America overwhelmingly have neither introspection nor honor. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Team, you know that I've been warning about the overreach that is inevitable here, that we would go from a period of a a, a perceived consensus. Now, that's not the same thing as a real consensus, but people use the term so that they'll say everyone agrees that we should do this thing that I want to do. There's a consensus, right? They pretend, for example, that they have one on climate change and how we have to tackle the problem of climate change. But there are these there are these uh, these signposts that you can look for these transition points that will always happen where at first it's there's consensus that the government has to take a certain action and then it's when the government begins to fail we're told well we had no choice because everyone agreed that we had to do this and then when you realize wait but we did have a choice they say shut up peasant stay indoors we have power now this is the way it's going to be that, that that's the natural progression when you're dealing with the state And when you're dealing with the the trajectory of unchecked government power, which is what we've been seeing in this country, when the government can show up and tell you your business shut down, no reason other than we say so. Yeah, they could claim that it's for a virus and all this other stuff. Fine. But there are states where there are a few hundred people who died from this. 
which means there are far more people over the same period of time who have been dying from a whole bunch of ailments and sicknesses out there. We're not shutting down for those. Now, New York is different. I understand the same way that if, you know, Louisiana is hit by a hurricane, God forbid, but that's happened in the past. Louisiana is a disaster. You got to do a lot of stuff for Louisiana. You don't do that for Michigan, though. You don't do that for Montana, right? I mean, so we took this approach of, of a nationwide lockdown without really thinking this through. And we also recognize that giving, once the, the national consensus, again, there's that word, it, it creeps in, you start using it. Once the national perception was that we all had to do this, then state governors and law enforcement that respond to state governors, uh, they will do whatever they can to increase their authority and their power because they at first think that they've got a responsibility. And then the frustration sets in that they're not uh, they're not changing things the way that they might have thought. And so they want more power. They want more responsibility. I got to tell you, this is just a, a side note, but I I was uh, walking little Tolu the Frenchie, who is quite adorable. And I like to we like to wrap her up. I, I like to wrap her up these days uh, like a little burrito. And I call it a, a, a Toledo because she's like a Tolu burrito. I know um, this is what happens when you spend like 24 hours a day with an with a dog and it's really your only companion. So anyway, uh, I but I was walking her outside your face mask on, of course, just kidding. I don't wear a face mask when I walk the dog. That's stupid. But as someone came, I, I saw someone was uh, double parked and they had their hazards on. And keep in mind, there's very few cars on the street and there's no traffic to speak of. There's very few people on the street. Producer Mark, how long do you think it took the NYPD tow truck to throw that BMW on the back and take it off to the to the the impound? Mm, half hour. Oh, my friend. Much Three, minutes. Oh, okay. Three minutes. Three minutes. <laughs> the, the guy leaves double park. He's got he's got his hazards on. There's no cars. There's nothing. And whoop, right, you know, he, he goes off. I felt so bad. I said, where is the guy? We got to get him. We can't let him get his car towed. That's one thing. I feel like everybody always has sympathy, unless you're being a real jerk and blocking traffic or something. But if, you, you know, when, when you leave the, the car in the fire lane or something and there's no fire and, the, and you, get the, you get towed, whew, it was a nice car, too. It was a, it was a new yeah, Beamer. You know, Man, Beamer drivers tend to think they can do whatever they want, so I don't really feel bad for them. But this guy, I, it was just it was so interesting because uh, when, you know, when I used to work for the NYPD, there was a, a government, the, the, the example of government efficiency that even the cops would point to is ticket writing and tow trucks. And it's very obvious why that is, right? Well, why is the city so good at writing tickets for traffic violations and you know, for, for parking? Uh, and why are they so good at, at uh, deploying tow trucks? It's just money in the bank. It's just revenue. But, you know, even even now, when you would think that, you know, maybe somebody might get a little bit of a break or whatever, man, I, it was this guy was like a tow truck ninja. I mean, it was just boop, 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 a car in the back and it was gone. I was like, oh, rough. It's rough, but it's money. They want money. I mean, the city is is desperate for cash right now. And that's going to be true of a lot of cities in a lot of places. And you're going to start to see, you know, People talking about cutbacks in essential services that puts additional pressure on cops and law enforcement across the board. Uh, and then they feel additionally stressed because they're pulling longer shifts and OT is cut back. I'm just telling you, I know this stuff all starts to spiral. It gets bad fast. So while I did have uh, a moment of 
a moment of just got a feel for the guy whose car, you know, you're going to spend like an hour at the impound now. It's going to cost you about 500 bucks to get your car back. Oh, man, it's rough. It's rough. Um, you also see what's going to happen in these cities and they're the, the bureaucracies. Once they're once their funding gets cut off, the bureaucracies get pretty, uh, pretty aggressive and they start to take going after the citizens with things like, well, and in any way they can drive up revenue. Anyway, so I've been warning you about how this is going to happen, and you know now that it is happening in different places. Parents are being arrested in playgrounds for taking their children out in open air. Who has the science on their side? The parent who, with their kid, remember, the kids and the parents all live in the same home, and they're constantly interacting. So trying, I mean, social distancing but among immediate family members is not something that's really happening. I mean, maybe if you're somebody who's at high risk, kids are at almost no risk. I mean, basically zero risk. So maybe if you're social distancing to keep grandma or grandpa safe, um, you know, that might work. It's very unlikely to be an easy thing to do. Maybe it'll work. But for families, you know, a husband and wife and their young children, the science is absolutely on their side, not on the side of the cop who I I do admit, I I feel bad when cops are being told you got to clear the park and that's the city ordinance. You know, that's the rule. Uh, you know, what are they what are they going to do? I mean, now I think that they can use discretion. I know a lot of law enforcement listens to the show and you guys know, you know, it, it, it always comes down to people. Right. I mean, you can see this in some of these videos. I'm about to play a video that that things it sends a chill up your spine. It's not not a good video about a law enforcement interaction with people. But I'm very sensitive to it. You know, if you're if you're being respectful, you know, I gave a. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago, maybe a week or two ago, that I, you know, sometimes Secret Service can be a little imperious. It's because I, I had a an interaction with one of the uh, with one of the family members, not not for Trump himself, but with a Secret Service member. And I was completely right in being respectful, and the guy was being a jerk. And I know the difference because I've been on different sides of that equation. Uh, and he was out of, he was out of line, and maybe he was having a bad day. Maybe his you know maybe his wife is uh, you know angry at him for something. Who knows, right? And I get that people are people. When you're dealing with law enforcement. And I know all the cops and former cops listening to this know. First thing is, how, how are you responding to the law, law enforcement request? Are you showing that you are being reasonable and cooperative? That's always step one. I actually think that they should. I don't know if they do. I will say that. But I think that they should teach this in school. You know, I'm going to tell you this right now. I remember being when I was a freshman in high school, the, the take, you know, they took a banana and a prophylactic device. And, they, you know, they actually they actually do that. Like they taught us how to do that, uh, you know, in health class. We had a health class, you know, and uh, I feel like it would be important for people to learn, first of all, basic finance and accounting. So you can manage your, your own uh, your own economic and, and financial future better. That would have been helpful. But beyond that, uh, they should have people they should do it like a role play where you're dealing with cops. I think it's a smart thing. And all it shows you is just be respectful and don't, you know, don't antagonize them. Don't antagonize them. A lot of people do that, and then they start doing the, why are you putting your hands on me, and you're not allowed to arrest me, and you can't do that. Actually, they can. In that instance, you can always adjudicate it later. You can sue. You can bring a court action. But in that moment, I'm not getting arrested today is not an option. So, you know, you get into this difficult, this, this tension. That's one side of it. The other side of it is cops are people too. I've got a cop in my immediate family. Uh, cops are people. Well, yeah, I think is you know aunts, uncles. Those are those are considered immediate. Are there, no, well, in my family, sorry, in my in my family. I don't want you guys to do a deep dive and say, wait a second, Buck's dad is a cop. No, no, no. 
one of my uh, one of my un- one of my uncles is law enforcement. Um, but you look at this and you say to yourself, okay, everyone understands that there's some pretty wacky rules out there, some pretty bad regulations that are being enforced on us. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, this just happened last night. I should have mentioned this at the top of the show. He is closing beaches in California to punish people because too many people weren't social distancing enough. Collective punishment is the calling card of authoritarianism. I mean, collective punishment is like the, a baseline reality in authoritarian societies. And that's what Governor Newsom's doing. Oh, you guys don't social distance enough? I'm going to take, take away your beach access. Well, everyone gets their beach access taken away because some people aren't. And the beach is also one of the safest places you can be. It's, it's the whole thing is so stupid. We're surrounded with so much stupidity. But it is incumbent upon law enforcement to make good decisions about this stuff. And they, they also, you know, so I said before, you got to be respectful of law enforcement. But there's, it's a two-way street. Law enforcement has to use its discretion appropriately. You know, law enforcement has to be willing to, uh, you, you know, they've got a lot of authority. They can let you go with a warning or they can just say, hey, as a heads up, you know, or they can make a big thing of it. And everyone knows this, right? Sometimes they're going a little too far. This is what happened in uh, where this was in Wisconsin. And here's how the exchange went. Uh, Producer Mark, play it. So are you aware that we're in a stay-at-home order right now? Uh, yeah, obviously. By the government? Yes, I Wisconsin? am aware. Okay, you're aware of that? I am aware. So I don't need to explain that to you? No, you don't need to explain okay, that to I me. Okay, because I can if you need me to. Go, you, can, you can, because your officer was just here two weeks ago. Okay, do you need me to And he it explained to it to me that you guys weren't enforcing that order. Oh, we're about to. So okay. You understand it though? Okay, so why are you here? Because your daughter is going to play at other people's home and you're allowing it to happen. They were over here as well. So okay. are and, you and here? They've been, and they've been talked to okay. about it. So no, I understand. You, okay. And so either you can acknowledge it or you can argue. I'm, a, I'm acknowledging it. Okay, stop having your kid go by other people's home. Stop having your kid go by other people's homes. This woman got a, got a visit from two sheriff's deputies to tell her that her child who we i guess we could assume is probably you know usually if you're arranging play dates kids like six or seven or eight or something a young kid going over to play with other kids no no stay locked at home because they say so children are at almost zero risk from i mean to say that you can't technically say they're at zero risk but also you know you you can't say it's zero risk for someone to uh, drink water because the water could be contaminated. You know, the water could have bacteria, could have you know salmonella in it or a giardia or something, and you could die. You could die from that glass of water that you're drinking right now. I can't, I can't guarantee you you're not going to die from it. That's crazy, though, right? We don't think that way. That's not how we approach life. We always build into our actions and to our assumptions some assessment of the real risk. The real risk to children from this virus is zero. And the risk of transmission increasingly we're seeing from children to adults I can't explain why this is, but we're seeing study after study that suggests the risk of transmission from children to adults is also very, very low. So here you have a woman who doesn't want her daughter to not have you know, not be able to see any friends. We're going on now six weeks. This is going to be week seven of lockdown. And, uh, the, you know, kids are out of school. They're locked at home all day. They're not developing. They don't have the normal growth and, and the, you know, the, the normal mechanisms in place to foster a a healthy environment for them and sheriff's deputies are showing up and telling her 
you know, you're, you're going to, you know, you're what exactly also? That's the other thing. Are they going to arrest her? I mean, look, the way to do this would have been a sheriff's deputy come knock the door and be like, look, you know, we understand this sucks. We understand this doesn't really make much sense, but can you now? May, now, maybe I think there, there's a suggestion that this is her second time. Maybe they did that the first time. So I try to be fair. We're only seeing a slice of this situation. But, you know, they, as, assuming, you know, if I'm that cop and I'm going over there, I'm going to say, look, this is kind of it's kind of crazy. I know. But let's just uh, let's assume going forward that we're going to be a little more. Uh, and a little more willing to respect this rule. It's d- as dumb as it is, you know, try something like that first. But instead, do we have Mark when I'm saying put her on the list or do I just I just verbalize that one? We don't um, have that. Oh, OK. Well, they go on in the clip and it's fine. You don't need to hear all this, but they go on and the female sheriff's deputy who's there is asking her name. And she's like, why do I have to, the woman who is the mother of this daughter who <gasps> heaven forbid went and played with some other kids? Uh, they're asking for her name. She says, why do I have to give you my name? And, you know, this is where you start to get into that. And the cops going to escalate. It's getting a little more antagonistic. And they said it's because they want to put her on a list, a list of people who are being uncooperative with the stupid regulations. This is a dumb regulation. This this is this does not make sense uh, that not allowing kids to see other kids. It's it's the science doesn't back this up. We're told, listen to the science. The science does not support the Wisconsin state order here that these law enforcement officers are being told that they must they must enforce. Uh, so then you're putting people on list though, and you're marking them as uncooperative. Well, what kind of list is this? Is it a criminal charge? Is it, is this going into some kind of report for what? This is not, this is not good. This is not the role of police. This is not the role of the state at all. It shouldn't be done this way. And I, I know that there are starting to be some challenges to the constitutionality of all of this, but we shouldn't get to that point because, stupid policies like not letting kids see other kids right now do not have any do not have any scientific basis for them. And we have people that don't know enough to pass a sixth grade basic science class telling us what we can do with our day to day lives because of the science. These people are these people, the, the politicians that are making these determinations, they're morons. They don't know anything. They're deeply ignorant. I mean, if nothing else, this is a reminder of how feckless and worthless most of our political class really is that's what we see happening here but the overreach is just going to get worse you're in the freedom hut this is the buck sexton show podcast the data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut significant positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery this is really quite important for a number of reasons, and I'll give you the data. It's highly significant. If you look at the time to recovery being shorter in the remdesivir arm, it was 11 days compared to 15 days. And that's a p-value for the scientists who are listening of 0.001. So that's something that, although a 31% improvement doesn't seem like a knockout 100%. It is a very important proof of concept because what it is proven is that a drug can block this virus. Some good news, folks, at a time when we could really use it. Remdesivir is not a silver bullet, but it's something, and it shows that we could have better things soon, hopefully. But it is good news. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Senator Mitch McConnell, you are bailing out New York when every year you take out more from the kitty, the federal pot, $37 billion more than you put in? Who is bailing out whom? Senator Scott, Florida, you're going to bail us out? You take out $30 billion more every year than you pay in. How dare they? How dare they when those are the facts? How long are you going to play the American people and assume they're stupid? They are not. And they can add. And they know facts. And I don't care what the news media tries to do to distort these facts. They are numbers. And they are facts. And they can't be distorted. And this is every year. So... The fight among the states is also a financial one, as we see. You have the the pressure to reopen red states, blue states. Blue states are going to move more slowly on this. Hopefully the red states like Texas will do very well, though Texas's opening is, is going at a pretty... They're, they're moving cautiously. They're not jumping into the deep end of the pool here. They're, they're moving at a, slow, at a relatively slow pace, but they are opening up. 25% of businesses will be able to operate... So I hope things are going well, especially down in uh, in Austin, our wonderful affiliate there, KLBJ Austin. I hope you folks are doing all right. I was planning to, I've been planning for a long time to get to Austin, although I think that uh, it's going to have to wait until we're allowed to fly on planes. But I, I know Texas is is moving along, and that will hopefully put additional pressure on these blue states to get up and running too. But there's also the financial obligations component of this, and this is going to be a very interesting discussion. It should be easy. It should be straightforward. A state might be able to make the case, I think especially New York State's going to make this case, that virus-specific budget shortfalls uh, deserve federal assistance. And this is the same way that if a state was decimated by a hurricane or an earthquake, there would be federal funding, there would be federal assistance. I think that that's, that's a fair case to make, and there's, there's merit in that. Well, the, the problem comes up, when all of a sudden people are saying, well, why don't we just I mean, we got we're spending trillions. Why don't we get an extra, you know, 10 billion here, 20 billion there to take the debt off the state's books for stuff that has nothing to do with the actual virus uh, shutdown? That's where you get in this fight with Mitch McConnell. And Mitch McConnell had said maybe some states should be allowed to go bankrupt uh, New York State, for what I understand, I think has a has a hundred and thirty billion dollar debt. It's a lot of money. New York is very, very deep in the red. There are other states. Illinois. Producer Mark, would you tell me what the Illinois state debt is? I don't want to look at it right now. I can't try to look it up while we're on air, but let me know what the Illinois state debt is. Some of these states have run up enormous tabs. And right now there's a very clear political incentive for them. While the piggy bank of the Treasury has been shattered and everyone's just grabbing, grabbing for whatever they can get. And it's, it's gross. There's a lot of this going on. We all know it's happening. But while that's going on, uh, these states are seeing this as an opportunity themselves to get some of their debts taken away. Remember, the, de- the debts that states are running up are overwhelmingly from one thing. Say it with me, folks. 
public sector pensions. That's what that's what the huge issue is here. When you look at some of the uh, some of the contracts and remember that you got one party rule at the state level in a place like uh, in a place like New York and a place like California. Wow. Illinois had to produce their mark. Illinois is two hundred and three billion dollars in, in the red. Two hundred three billion dollar debt for a state. That's that's remarkable. So that's why we, we see this and states are saying, hey, you know, maybe they won't get the whole thing wiped away. But can you imagine if you're a state, you get to have your, your public debt uh, cut in half or even cut it down by 20 or 30 percent? Oh, what a windfall that would be for public sector unions, which are the, the ones that are the, the most egregious. I know I'm gonna get, people get mad at me for this one, but the most egregious public sector union with this stuff is the teachers union. It's the teachers unions and the edu- and the education departments for these different states. That's where a huge portion of this budget f- uh, shortfall comes from year in and year out. It's why property taxes keep going up in these places. It's why the state taxes are as high as they are. And there's an there's an unholy alliance between the Democrat left and these public sector, particularly the public sector unions. And it's a huge source of political donations and political muscle to make sure Democrats stay in charge in these places. The reason the pension benefits are so big, and this is not that complicated to understand or to find out, uh, pension benefits are big because that's something that's back-ended. And so they can do a calculation. They'll promise the unions, hey, you know, you guys, um, we can't pay you all 150 grand, right? We can't pay public school teachers 100. Well, they'll they'll pay administrators money like that sometimes, depends on the school district. But we're not going to be able to pay teachers that. But we will be able to give you you know, full benefits, full health care and, and full retirement for, you know, for the rest of your life and, and with 20 years of service. I mean, you know, you have to look at what the specific contracts are for, for different places. But after 20 years of service, regardless of how old you are and you can go get another job, you're going to have full benefits for the rest of your life. Really sweet back end deals that are very expensive. Very expensive. I, I remember when I was uh, now I was not actually a uniformed officer, so I was a, a contract civilian, effectively a brought in as an outside expert to work with the NYPD as a, as a civilian. Um, but I, I, I knew what some of the deals were in place and what the union had negotiated. If you're NYPD, you know, you get to retire, at least when I was in, when I was working there, you could retire after 20. It doesn't matter how old you were. So you could retire in your 40s with full pension and benefits uh, for you and your family, which was, a, which was a pretty amazing deal when you think about it. Uh, and, and the health care that they have is effectively they don't really pay anything for it. And it's good health care. I had terrible health care as a contract civilian. NYPD's health care for me was total garbage. So anyway, that, that's where the big budget shortfall comes in. And this is long term spending. These are bad habits that states have that they don't want to be held to account for. Well, that's why Trump comes along and he's like, OK, well, you know, we're going to have a conversation about this. If there's going to be bailouts for these states, it's not going to be as easy as just uh, you know, we, we want money, give us money. And the federal government doesn't have to do that. There's no obligation of the federal government to come along and financially uh, make these states whole or solvent even. So this is what the president said. Play clip 12. I don't think you should have sanctuary cities if they get that kind of aid. You know, if you're going to get aid to the cities and states for the kind of numbers you're talking about, billions of dollars, 
I don't think you should have sanctuary cities. And by the way, the people that have sanctuary cities, they don't like it. I think politicians like it a lot more. I, I go to California. I go to lots of different places. Sanctuary cities are going to be a part of this fight. The Department of Justice has already been taking this on. The Department of Justice does not want uh, this to be something that continues. So we'll see. We'll see if the president holds to this. But there might be some negotiating over what states get, what they can do, and, and how far this how far this bailout is really going to stretch. Um, the red states and blue states, we are seeing we're seeing federalism at work. But as we know, that can be a messy and, and loud process. It's not not a seamless not a seamless situation. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. We're now on average about 30,000 tests per day, which is a dramatic increase, not where we need to be, but a dramatic increase. Where we are now, you should know, is New York State is doing more than most countries are doing. So we have been very aggressive in testing, and we have made great progress, and New Yorkers should feel good about that, but we have more to do. You know that I've been skeptical of how successful we'll be in the the biggest single point that you'll hear from the shutdown, lockdown forever chorus or the lockdown until it's safe, which is not a thing. There's not going to be until it's there's not going to be a safe unless a miracle happens and we don't wait for miracles. We don't shut down our economy hoping for a miracle. But test and trace has been the refrain, right? Oh, we're just going to test and trace. That's what we're that's how we handle this. That's what we'll do. And I've been saying, well, on the one hand, there's just the civil liberties uh, issue of having people now that we're hiring these uh, tracers. People are going to like talk to you about everyone you've talked to and been around. It's a little creepy from a big uh, those of us that worry about big government. That, that should be an issue. I would think it's an issue. But then you also add into this the competency or lack thereof of the government to even do this program. Now, now, testing, fine. We're, we're going to test at a high level. Uh, but remember, we're being told that if we test enough, that'll be, that will allow us to suppress the virus, which would mean we'd have to be testing large numbers of asymptomatic people. We'd have to be able to, the system would have to sustain that. And then we have this tracing capacity where anyone who has the virus, they're going to track down all their contacts and find out who they, and make sure they get tested right away so that they know if they have it before they infect other people. I, I, I does this does this sound plausible to you? Because let, let me just say this: the uh, unemployment numbers that came out today, which we all know are are just jaw dropping, but we kind of expect it, right? It's, there's no surprise here. Three point eight million more have sought jobless benefits, um, but we're also seeing that the states that are supposed to be doling out money here, including the six hundred dollars a week of additional benefit from the federal government, which is why now. You have so many employees who don't want to go back, don't want to uh, work when they could just stay home and keep getting paid more money. You know, I, I love this job, but I don't want to, you know, if, if I double producer Mark's salary and said, producer Mark, you can stay home for double the salary or you can come in and work. You know, I might have to ask him at least pretty pleased to actually come back in and work. Right. And that would be true of anybody. If you're making more money, considerably more money in a lot of cases for folks. Uh, staying home than you are working, the incentive to work goes down. But the states, not only that they have to deal with this problem where people don't want to go back and work, there's also 
an inability for these states to dole out the money properly and to process the unemployment applications. They're not really able to do that. You say, well, how is that, how is that possible? Well, Wall Street Journal has a really good piece on it today about the surge in jobless benefits testing state systems. Here's what they tell you. Many states' unemployment benefit systems, quote, are hamstrung by archaic, decades-old technology, coping with relief legislation that provides an additional $600 a week in benefits and making independent contractors such as Uber and drivers, uh, Uber drivers eligible has created additional strains. The administrative problems means the official tally of 26 million initial uh, claims is almost certainly an undercount. About 600,000 people tried to apply for benefits in the week ended April 23rd, but were unable to file due to long waits or other reasons. Uh, Then then they, they do. So the system is decades old technology. I've told you before about my experience, the NYPD using a and this was in 2011. So almost 10 years ago. But they were using a system. I'm not kidding. It ran on DOS. So it was like, you know, the little the little I don't even know how to describe how to describe it. But this is, I think, almost before producer Mark was alive. But, you know, C colon dash dash tab semicolon. That, that's and we were it was always this big joke and frustration in the office that we're, we're using a DOS system. This thing is is quite literally from, I think, the, maybe the early 90s. And that was what we had to do to pull up files for things was absurd absurd um but states have a lot of stuff like that where they don't want to they don't want to invest you don't get votes you know you don't you don't consolidate your power as as a state government by making sure that people are more efficient at their jobs no remember this the government always has an incentive state governments in particular well all governments really have an incentive to be inefficient because their inefficiency becomes the justification for a greater demand for resources. So they need more people. They need more stuff. They need more money. They need more money. Well, why, why make someone better at their job when you could hire three people to do one job? So you have to keep that in mind. That's how the government functions as a general rule. And the Wall Street Journal brings us home by explaining what this means for people. That states, remember, states are going to do the test and trace system. They're going to do the test and trace but they can't handle the jobless applications out there. But they're going to handle test and trace really well. Does anybody believe this? Uh, journal here reports that uh, a resident of New Jersey, Amber Montserrat, said she had a past due electricity bill and rent to pay, but still doesn't know when she'll receive unemployment benefits. She's a mother of four boys and her family, a family's main breadwinner. She started applying for unemployment in mid-March. She was laid off from her job as a waitress because of the pandemic. She now works one day a week delivering meals to families in the school district. Uh, She calls the New Jersey Department of Labor and Workforce every day to find out what the holdup is, but has not been able to get through. So people have no money. They have no job. We've just been told that the government's trying to just shovel money to them as fast as they can. And they're not even able to do that. But we're going to have a massive program of finding all cases, finding all positives, and everyone that they've come into contact with once they're positive. We're going to set that up real fast. Does anyone, does anyone want to place bets on whether the Buckster is going to end up looking right on this one or not? Uh, 
Quote, I'm reading that the system is over 40 years old. It's pen and pencil type stuff, she said. That's not really acceptable now when you have people that are relying on these services. It is not acceptable, is it? This is why you don't want state governments in charge of things. This is why you don't want the government running your whole economy. There are reasons for the beliefs that we have as conservatives. There are reasons why we want limited government. It's not because we're mean. It's not because we're all Ebenezer Scrooge. It's because we understand the limitations the, and the built-in lack of incentive for efficiency, for getting things done well. And the Wall Street Journal article then gives you, the, and this is just a, this is a classic. Uh, this is what's going on in Connecticut. Remember, these are unemployment systems that have been substandard for a long time, and now they've just had the biggest deluge of claims in history, and there's, they're just breaking under the strain. I mean, New York system had to come down or come offline because it couldn't handle all the applications. Here's how it is in Connecticut. The extra $600, this is from the federal government, pushes the highest eligible payout to $1,249, but Connecticut's computer system was designed to handle only up to three-digit payments. Pushing up the maximum to four digits would require reviewing and modifying well over 100 mainframes. That's right. Connecticut can't even give people the money that they are legally due from the government because the Connecticut system is so crappy that it only can process three-digit claims. So if, if they want to give you $999, you're good. But if your unemployment check is going to be $1,000, too bad. But remember, folks, a massive campaign of consistent, accurate testing across the populace that is mandatory, I suppose. How are they going to get people to do this? Maybe people aren't going to want to take all these tests all the time. But put that aside for a moment. And then finding, uh, finding these people once they're positive and finding the people they've come into contact with. Test and trace. That's the answer. New York State, the state that can't give you money that's due you, uh, is going to make sure that you know whether or not you've been infected and everyone you come into contact with and do so in such a timely fashion that it prevents future outbreaks. Uh, I hope I'm I hope I'm wrong on this one, but I don't think so. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I believe her. It's obvious. Not okay. Her story is credible. I believe the women. I believe her. She is credible. She should be heard. And this Senate should treat her with respect and dignity that she deserves. Honesty, her integrity, her truth. It's obvious. He should be going to jail if he was allowed to be prosecuted today. It's not okay. Do you believe the allegation that's been put out there by Tara Reid against Biden? Um... Vice President Biden has vehemently denied these allegations, and I support Vice President Biden. Do you think some of the Democrats who supported Lazy Ford's allegations against Kavanaugh, who've, who've been silent on this Biden allegation, do you see that as a contradiction, that they're not speaking out more and addressing Tara Reid's allegation? I stand by Vice President Biden. He's devoted his life to supporting women, and he has vehemently denied this allegation. Kirsten Gillibrand, senator from New York, telling everybody there back during the Kavanaugh era, she totally believed Blasey Ford, 100 percent, totally credible. It's great. Oh, yeah, we believe her. And then when asked about the Joe Biden accuser, it's I believe Joe Biden. 
Wait, I thought women had a right to be believed. Now it's Joe Biden has a right to be believed. I want to bring in Siraj Hashmi from the Washington Examiner to weigh in on this one. Siraj, thanks, man. First time having you on. Appreciate you having me on, Buck. So I I think that uh, this is going to just get worse and worse because the New York Times really set set the initial tone of this by waiting two weeks and then saying, yeah, well, we didn't think that Biden was as much a public figure as Kavanaugh, which is just a flatly absurd and kind of crazy thing to say. And I've seen some efforts to try and and claim that the double standard here is not as bad as it really is. Uh, Chris Hayes last night on MSNBC, to his credit, brought up the allegations against Joe Biden. And now fire Chris Hayes is trending on Twitter. What is going on here? It's actually incredible to see the double standard at play here. Usually when you see things like this, it's usually your run-of-the-mill type of uh, political story. This has to do with sexual assault accusations against the uh, the presumptive Democratic nominee, Joe Biden. And Kate Kelly, who was was one of the writers of the book uh, about Brett Kavanaugh's accusations, uh, works for the New York Times. She wrote uh, in a tweet about a couple of weeks ago how there was just a different news judgment when it came to Brett Kavanaugh versus Joe Biden. And that's why they didn't cover uh, Joe Biden as uh, aggressively as they covered Brett Kavanaugh. He's the presumptive nominee. I, I mean, how how different is that news judgment? Is it, It's all become a it's become a point where it's just if your side does it, we should just give it an automatic pass. But if the other side does it, oh. Shame on you, naughty boy. Yeah, I just would wonder how any journalist who who was taking the approach and it's in writing and you can you know, you find the clips online of them going on cable news that women have. I mean, the phrase was women have a right to be believed and they completely believe Blasey Ford. And the standard that they set up was that if there's even a doubt about Kavanaugh, we should not put him in power. Right. That was actually what was being said at the time. And I remember I was very involved in that fight. So then I want to know, why is now the standard that we just believe Joe Biden? Because when the allegation against him, there is nothing about it that is not credible. I mean, I I challenge somebody to find where the contradiction is or where the absence of of essential facts would be. Politics, in short, has poisoned the well here and the well being the Me Too movement. It cannot be escaped. Rose McGowan, who actually has been very consistent about uh, her stance on sexual assault accusations or any, you know, any allegations of uh, the sexual misconduct nature. She is actually in a, in a tweet last night posted about her kind of dismayal and how discouraged she was to see how uh, she's been a lifelong Democrat and all the Democrats are just rallying behind Joe Biden in spite of these very, what could be very credible accusations of sexual misconduct by Tara Reid uh, against Joe Biden. And what we're seeing right now is that you're just going to see the whole Me Too movement unravel to the point where all the goodwill that was built up will be for nothing. We're speaking to Siraj Hashmi. He's a uh, commentary uh, video expert at The Washington Examiner. Um, Siraj, Joe Biden hasn't responded to this yet. Uh, Journalists, it, it seems, haven't been willing to ask him about this yet. Nancy Pelosi has been saying that she stands with him, of course, because, you know, Nancy Pelosi wants power. 
You had Stacey Abrams claim the New York Times effectively exonerated Biden, which is not true. Even the Times has said, well, we, we didn't do that. Uh, or, you know, that, that, that it was found not credible. They did not do that because there's no way to make it not credible so far. Uh, when does Biden have to get asked about this? Or do you think it's possible that, that journalists are just going to try to, you know, push this thing aside and ride it out until people don't care anymore, which I don't know when that's going to be. From what I'm hearing is that Tara Reid is strategically making sure that her story is being heard uh, through the media. You're getting it heard by Chris Hayes on MSNBC. Uh, eventually, you're starting to hear, you're actually starting to see Brian Stelter tweet about it. Albeit, Brian Stelter hasn't really been sort of the best arbiter on what the media should be covering and should not be covering. I'm hearing from uh, Ben Smith, uh, the New York Times, who's a media reporter who's uh, previously with BuzzFeed, that Tara Reid is in discussions with Fox News to, to join Chris Wallace's show on Sunday. Uh, we'll see what happens with that because there's a good chance that if she ends up becoming sort of a, a staple within conservative media, then there's almost the immediate uh, the immediate backlash to that would be see look she's a she's a plot of the conservative media she's a plot of the Republican Party to try to destroy Joe Biden therefore her accusations of sexual misconduct should be thrown out. So there's a very there's a balancing act she has to play right now, and it all it, it really depends on who she speaks with and what she says. But the corroborations from Linda Lacasse earlier this week certainly is a lot more than what we've seen from Christine Blasey Ford against Brett Kavanaugh. And do you think that the the pressure on some of the journalists out there to push Biden on this will become too much because right now i mean meaning that that he has to actually answer for this i would also just say and this is an aside this is my opinion as a as a guy um if someone's saying this about you i I don't care what the circumstances are if it's not true i think you say this is not true this did not happen i don't think you allow your campaign to do that for you i think that's weird but that's my opinion but what do you think about the journalists out there uh who have access to biden who have yet to ask him about this that's the thing I'm, I'm, I think is a good question to ask is when it comes to journalists having access to Joe Biden, is asking the question about Tara Reid's accusation going to jeopardize their access to the Democratic nominee? And I think for a lot of reporters, that's always been a fine line that they've had to try to balance here. I think the what we've seen in the last week, just in the last few days, is that the uh, amount of evidence or an amount of people talking about Tara Reid is going to become so great that the mainstream media, the the main uh, the the main outlets, uh, you know, CBS, M- NBC, MSNBC, uh, ABC, and uh, Fox News and CNN, they have to cover it. It's too big of a story to ignore, and that that's what just you got to just keep talking about it. And Tara Reid has to just continue to tell her story and try to tell it as much as she possibly can, um, but. At the same time, not get lost in the woods of being uh, trying to become herself uh, a media star because sometimes victims use. Uh, unfortunately, there's some victims out there who use their story to sort of launch a career in and of, of themselves. And I don't think Tara Reid is one of those types of people. Siraj Hashmi of the Washington Examiner. Siraj, thanks so much for your time, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Buck. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. And finally, we need to ensure that women have access to all health services during this crisis. 
Abortion is essential health care service. It's being used as a political wedge right now, and it shouldn't be. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the American Medical Association agree that it shouldn't be categorized as a procedure that can be delayed. It can't. I know that there's the huge political double standard that we often talk about when it comes to Me Too, but let's also remember that there's there's always, when it comes to any issues involving uh, women and how the left will treat people, if you are pro-life, they will try to destroy you and you get no benefit of the doubt, you get no, uh, no second chance, nothing. If you are pro-choice, you're always going to be in a better category. I'm not saying that it's a get-out-of-jail-free card, but it's, it's always going to be a better category for you. And obviously, if you're a Democrat and you're pro-choice and you're important to the movement, well, then you're Joe Biden. And then, you know, he, look, he's going to get a pass on this. There's no chance in my mind that Joe Biden is going to uh, be held to account on this. What is perhaps perhaps still lingering in the back of some people's minds, maybe it's just my mind, is that a certain someone doesn't think that this whole thing is totally over yet in terms of the nomination and who the Democrat nominee is going to be. There is someone out there who never says that uh, it's all over, you know, never says it never says that it's time to, to pack it in. There's, you know, the unexpected can happen. You know, things can just all of a sudden change in your favor. You know, Epstein could no longer be a problem. And how did that happen? Right. I mean, you know, things all of a sudden just change. You have a crazy circumstance that breaks in your in your direction and you get to be the nominee. Who's thinking in those terms? Who's thinking about, you know, maybe Biden is, uh, you know, has a health issue, a real health issue, which I think we all see happening in real time anyway. But you never know what's going to happen when the Clintons are in the background. You never know how things are going to go. Here's Hillary talking about what she thinks is going on here. Play one. This is a high stakes time uh, because of the pandemic. But this is also a really high stakes election. And. Every form of health care should continue to be available, including uh, reproductive health care for every woman uh, in this country. Uh, and then it needs to be part of a much larger system that eventually and quickly, I hope, gets us to universal health care. So uh, I, I can uh, only uh, say amen to everything you're saying, but also to, again, enlist people that this would be a terrible crisis to waste, as the old saying goes. We've learned a lot about what our absolute uh, frailties are in our country when it comes to health justice and economic justice. So, you know, let's be resolved that we're going to solve those once you're elected president. I promise you that's going to be my objective. Hmm. Yeah. You better better be your objective, Joe, because Hillary doesn't sound like somebody who just has some helpful ideas, does she? She's in the background. Hello. She's still there wondering when it will be her time. Round three. Third time's a charm. She tried twice. Why not give her a third go? I'm not going to give up until there's somebody else on Election Day on the Democrat ballot. I'm I'm not going to say that it's all it's all over. I'm I'm just I'm sorry. The Clintons, there is something truly uh, you almost respect the malevolence. You know, you almost have to say to yourself, 
it's amazing what they're able to uh, what they've been able to endure and they, they just stay and they're so shameless and so reckless and oh my gosh really you couldn't write better political villains in some ways than the Clintons they're they're really in a class by themselves oh you know I mentioned uh, climate change the other day and if you want to know how much the science is really driving the discussion now uh, the the climatologist in chief the world's most famous climate change advocate is now appearing in New York City Department of Education videos telling us to listen to the science on coronavirus as if this wasn't politicized enough by people who don't know what the heck they're talking about. Here she is. You know, I'm talking about Greta Thunberg. Play six. Listen to the science and listen to the experts. And that, of course, not only goes for the corona crisis, but also all crises. For example, the climate crisis and the ecological crisis, which, of course, is still ongoing. Yes. Got to tie those things together. Listen to the scientists. Th- thank you, Greta, for telling us to listen to the scientists. What are the scientists telling us about how we reopen our society and how we go back to life. Oh, you mean that's not a scientific question. That's a societal question. That's something that we have to decide. I just, it's amazing, isn't it? They, they still, they have the, I think she's 16 or 17 now. You can't, you can't make fun of her until she's 18. Then you're allowed. I think technically you're allowed because then she's an adult. Then I think you're allowed. And she's being, her opinion is being foisted upon. She's not a private citizen. She's not somebody who's just trying to live her life. You know, we don't make fun of private citizens uh, who are just trying to go about their business. But for now, it's, oh, she's a kid. But we should all listen to her. It's one of the more amazing, one of the more amazing disconnects that I've seen among libs. And there's a lot of them, right? We're talking about their disconnect with justice over the General Flynn case. Their disconnect over the double standard that's so slap you in the face obvious about this Joe Biden situation versus Kavanaugh and even some of what they said about Trump although to this day what was what's the credible people have always said that Trump sexually assaults people liberals will say this what's the credible sexual assault allegation again from whom and in what circumstance oh he said that they, they, they let you grab okay well he's just talking about being a celebrity who can be aggressive sexually with women who let him do that that's not sexual assault what exactly is the, you know, you, you hear this, it's thrown around all oh, there's, you know, all the, I've heard numbers too, large numbers, they say, of women that say, oh, well, it turns out that there isn't one, is there? Um, but the media reported on it. Oh, there was that the one woman who wrote the book and then went on TV and everyone realized that she's emotionally unwell. And then they dropped that, right? Then they dropped that situation pretty quickly. Um but we, we keep seeing this, the, the double standards that are, are really a necessity for liberalism in the current context, because it's so desperate for power all the time, because that really is the psychology and the, the collective emotion and uh, emotional and psychological state of contemporary liberalism is a constant relativism in search of power and authority over others. That's that's really what it is. That's if you if you boil it down, if you take it at its core and that means that there's going to be a lot of double standard. There's going to be a lot of uh, shifting goalposts. Uh, and we see a lot. We see that happening right now. Oh, we got my friend Porter Stansberry in the house. He's going to be joining us here in just a moment to talk about what's going to happen with the economy. Basically, Porter's going to answer the question for us. For, this is all he does is look at this and, and try to make good investment 
uh, ideas uh, for for his re- uh, for his subscribers. Where does the economy head from here? Porter Stansberry will answer that one for us in just a moment. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, team, we know the economy is in tough shape right now. Let's put it mildly. So I wanted to bring somebody on who just looks at the economy and markets all the time, has been doing so for decades, and actually really knows what the heck he's talking about. We've got Mr. Porter Stansberry with us, the founder of Stansberry Research, which I write for. I've done a podcast with Porter in the past. They've also sponsored some of our radio, uh, radio spots. So, Porter, great to have you on. Great to talk to you as always, Buck. All right, let's just start with this. 30 million roughly unemployed, officially unemployed at this point. That's that's pretty much where the number is. Uh, what is going on right now with the U.S. economy and how concerned are you about what's happening? I'm I think I'm probably among the, the least concerned uh, people who look at the numbers and things, because, you know, if you just look at the numbers, I think you you're really going to be led astray. If we had had 30 million people unemployed because there was a real estate bubble or because um, there was a collapse of industrial demand or you know, uh, a trade war with China that had really spun out of control, I think that's a far different circumstance than saying, hey, guess what? When nobody can go out to eat, when nobody can go shopping, every single person who's employed in restaurants, food service, or retail is gonna lose their jobs. And that's what's happened. So I think the more important question and the unknown question is what will happen six months from now with that number? And if the answer is that number drops from 30 million to 10 million, I think our economy is going to be just fine. If the answer is the Fed keeps spending tons and tons and tons of borrowed money and makes unemployment checks very attractive and people don't want to go back to work, then welcome to permanent socialism in America. And and that's, I think, the the bigger risk is that the bigger risk to me is not economic. The bigger risk is political. What happens in the future because of how much power the government is exercising now and the role that it has taken to play in the lives of millions and millions of, of citizens? What about some of the major industries and, and some industries really people think of as just either one company or a handful of companies, you know, the airline industry, for example, uh, the aerospace and defense sector with Boeing. Uh, what's going to happen to those uh, to those different sectors of the economy for which tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of jobs are, are dependent? Uh, how do you see that playing out, certainly over the next six months? You know, I'm in the camp, uh, Buck, that's, that really sees the economy coming roaring back. Um, the, the steps that the government has taken in terms of the amount of money they're pushing into the economy is really incredible. I mean, there's a, this is, is going to end up being a multi-trillion dollar stimulus package. And I know that, the, that there will be enormous amounts of pent-up demand as a result. I mean, people haven't been able to leave their homes now and 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 more than 30 days. In my case, it's been about 60 days. And, you know, everyone's booking travel, everyone's making plans for the summer and the fall. Everyone wants to get back to life. Um, and and so I think that you're, you know, again, I really do believe that the economy will come back very, very quickly. I'm very bullish on the, the second half of this year. And and I think this is just an opinion. I'm I'm obviously not a medical doctor. But I think that the response to the virus has been what's caused the bigger problem. Um, 
you know, it's not unusual for 60 to 80,000 people a year to die of flu and pneumonia. So, so you, you think know, this think, was, think you, you think this was an overreaction Porter. That's, I mean, from a policy standpoint, I, I think that's the bigger story here. Frankly, I, I, I honestly believe Buck, that the economy will be just fine. Uh, you know, when you, there's a, I see there's a giant difference between hitting a pause button and, and seeing things like a, a real decline in consumer demand or seeing a rise in bankruptcy that was organic. You know, this is a very, very, very different kind of recession that we're having. It's, it's not organic. It's not, it's not based in economics. It's completely a political problem. And I, I truly believe that when you allow the politicians to run over the Constitution and to decide for every individual how much risk they should take with their own health, you've, you've lost something that's way more important than money. You've lost liberty. You've lost freedom. And again, that's my concern. The government's going to print up a ton of money. We're going to get through this bump in the road. The economy is going to come roaring back. Employment's going to surge in the third quarter of this year. Those things are very obvious to me. What isn't obvious is how long the government's going to going to act like a dictatorship. And, and, and when will, if ever, will the government admit that a lot of the strategies that they have used over the past two months were enormously expensive and completely medically unnecessary. You know, there's been some great work that's come out that shows how much more widespread the virus has become, how many people didn't have any symptoms, and, and what role obesity and other health problems have played in the fact that this virus is fatal in some cases. But I bet you by the time the data comes in that we will discover that this coronavirus is no different or more dangerous than any other coronavirus that typically circulates among human beings. What was bad about it was that nobody had any native immunity. And so a whole lot of people got sick at the same time. And yeah, that's a big problem, it is. But it doesn't mean that I'm gonna die if I, if I leave my house and catch this virus. If you are if you're under the age of 50, if you're in reasonably good health, you really don't have anything to worry about. So why should the government tell me I can't leave my home? It makes no sense. And who's a better who is a better judge of that? Me and my doctor or the governor of my state? I mean, I think the, it's, the answer is so obvious that this is such an unbelievable overreaction. That I think is the bigger issue. Can can our government ever really look back at these measures and do a better job next time. Because my big concern is, is not that the economy can't come back. My big concern is that, is that there will be a change in the political dynamics. There will be winners and losers from these measures. And the people who are winners from these measures are going to insist on taking them again. Well, you've already started so to see shut- you've already started to see some of the the prominent Democrat politicians politicians are, are letting it out that they view this as an opportunity to change things dramatically in this country, not just while the virus is out there and to get us back on our feet, but to change things for the foreseeable to, to alter the course of America economically and, and politically. I'm assuming you've you've seen some of those early indicators, too. Yeah, of course. And listen, there's plenty of real world examples. There are plenty of places that didn't shut down their economy. You know, there's Japan, there's Singapore, there's Sweden, there's Iceland. There's plenty of places that handle this in a different way. And we're not going to see any additional mortality in those other places. We are not going to see that because this virus is not fatal to anyone who's in relatively good health. And if you look at the numbers of people who have died, what percentage of them were already in nursing homes? 
it's like 25, 30%. And, you know, I'm sorry, but those people were out the door anyways. They're, they weren't going to stay with us no matter what. They would have died from a regular virus. They would have died from pneumonia. They would have died because they are old and sick. And that's tragic, but it doesn't it doesn't mean that we should all give up our liberties and our businesses and our and our our freedom. It makes no sense. Have you been? And, and if they can do, if they can do this for a for a flu virus, then what are they gonna? What what is gonna trigger them to do this next time? You know? Oh my gosh! There's a risk of an earthquake. The the, the scientists say an earthquake is coming. No one leave their homes or whatever whatever the next pretext will be. And one more thing, Buck, about this. Think about the Battle of Britain. You know, back in the spring of uh, 41 uh, and the fall of 1940, when you had Germans killing thousands of people every week with bombs, right? This is a real threat to a country. Did the government of Great Britain mandate that everyone live in their basements all day long and not leave the house? Because there is a real risk that if you're walking around the street, you're going to die. In fact, it's happening to thousands of people every day. And it's not from a virus, it's from bombs. But what did they what did they do? How did they what happened in that situation? Everyone went to work. Everyone went out to dinner. Everyone ignored it because there was nothing they could do about it except live their regular lives. And that's what we should have done from the start. And you know, if we had, then there'd already be herd immunity. I mean, there's probably something between 15 and 30 percent of people in urban areas that have already gotten this virus. You know, they're, they're not gonna, all, we're not gonna all die. Let us go back to work. It's the biggest overreaction in history. And so then the real question is why? What, who is winning politically by locking everyone in their homes? Well, this is what I was gonna ask you, so take that away. Why do you think this has happened? I really can't fathom. I just, I think there are probably plenty of politicians who were scared and were afraid that if they didn't do, quote, something, then uh, if, if there was a bunch of mortality associated with this pandemic, that they would be seen in history as, you know, uncaring fools. So I think there's always the, the, the preset tendency is the government has to do something to justify, you know, its existence. And so they're probably going to err always on doing, quote unquote, something. But how crazy is it that they would that they would mandate this extreme reaction when they didn't even have data. Like at the very least, take a random sample of the population and understand what the viral impact has already been. Yeah. And the models were wrong, as we know now, but they tell us that the models that were used to justify the shutdown, it doesn't matter that they were wrong. That's that's the latest theory that we're all supposed to live under. Porter, I need to, I need to take a quick pause here. We'll come right back with you. I want to ask about what should folks that are being hit economically right now by this, what should they be thinking about? What should they be doing? Founder of Stansbury Research, Porter Stansbury. More with him when we come back in a second. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Okay, we've got the founder of Stansbury Research, the one and only Mr. Porter Stansbury with us. So, Porter, you're you're bullish for the long term here for America. You were saying before you think that we will be able to bounce back, which I think is honestly really encouraging to the people all across the country who are listening to this. But I want to ask you, though, in the, in the short term, uh, for folks who are either hurting badly economically, 
uh, or who want to get prepared. Let's start with the folks who are hurting. What, what would you do or how would you advise someone who's operating a small business right now? Uh, would you tell them try to open as soon as possible? You know, how can they try to prepare their finances and, and their economic future, given the uncertainty we're facing? Well, you know, I've seen a lot of small business owners doing a lot of very smart things. There are some folks, um, you know, I, I, I'm here today at my farm in Baltimore County, but I also have um, a penthouse apartment downtown. And walking around downtown Baltimore, I was I was so happy to see how many small uh, bars and restaurants have basically set, set up outdoor um, gardens where people are congregating and enjoying food and booze and socializing. Now they're, you know, they're, they might be standing a little bit more further apart than they ordinarily would, but there are a lot of business owners have, who have found ways to flout the law and the regulations. And I'm, 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 I'm I think that's great. I'm, uh, I'm, you know, my business, I wouldn't describe it as small, but, uh, I, I think there's lots of entrepreneurial things that we can do. For example, I'm, I'm making a t-shirt that says F- your mask. <laughs> And has an American flag on the back. You know, the, the, the consumer demand is going to change relative to where where we are in this pandemic process. But anything that you can do to serve your customers, anything you can do to um, find ways around the regulations, then you have to do. And I think that the good business owners have already done that. They've already they're way ahead of us. But a, a guy I know in town who makes custom clothing nobody's ordering custom clothing right now because no one's even going into the office. So he went through his contacts in China and began making designer masks, you know, and he's selling them like hotcakes. So there's lots of, there's lots of ways to stay in business if you will be creative and if you will meet the market demand where, where it is today. And what do you say to our, our uh, listeners right now who are seeing where they're, well, they're seeing where their 401k is and it's, it's obviously for a lot of folks down a bit from where it was uh, what, a few months ago, but this does bring up an interesting thing. People are scared about what the market will do, but Porter, the market hasn't really crashed the way that if you had told somebody we had a pandemic or everyone's locked at home, they would have guessed, I think. I mean, it, it seems almost like the market is frozen in place in some ways right now. What, 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 should people be concerned or should they just ride it out? Well, Buck, I don't know if you'll remember or not, but on March 24th, we had a conference, an online conference for our, for our, for our clients, for our subscribers at Stansbury Research. And I got with our analytical team, we put together, I, I believe it's 40, 40 different stocks, the 40 large businesses that we said at that time, this is the greatest opportunity in your lifetime you'll have to buy these businesses. And we recommend that you begin buying them, even though the market hasn't shown any sign of bottoming, right? At that point, the Dow was down almost 40%. And so that was a really dire time. Meanwhile, what I saw was you could buy American Express at seven times earnings. I saw you could buy Coca-Cola with a 4% dividend. These are, these are opportunities that I had never seen in my entire lifetime as a financial analyst. The ability to buy the world's best brands, the world's best business models, the world's best products at 40% off. And, you know, I'm not saying that the market wasn't a little bit overvalued at the start of this crisis, but it wasn't, it wasn't in my mind, um, so overvalued that you had to, you know, you should be in cash. Um, so a 40% decline from something that's very likely to be a two or three quarter impairment to earnings, that doesn't make any sense to me, Buck. And so that's why I was telling people to buy. 
And I think, I think to a lesser extent, of course, because now the market has rallied 25 or 30% from that, from that point, but there are still great opportunities for long-term investors. Now, look, I can't tell you what the stock market is going to be a month from now. I can't tell you what the stock market is going to be six months from now, but I can tell you that this pandemic is not going to wreck our economy. The risk is that it will wreck our economy. The, the risk to our economy is political, not financial. Um, the amount of liquidity and, and loans and money that's being pumped into our economy is going to cause us to have a very, very strong recovery. And I would be willing to bet you that 12 months from now, there is no impairment whatsoever to the earnings of any major high quality blue chip American company. Well, that's very positive stuff. So that's that's good to hear. How are you doing, Porter, down there, brother? How, how are you riding out this whole situation? You said you've been in almost 60 days of quarantine. How are you keeping busy? Well, you know, luckily there's lots to do for my company. We, we all, it's, it's not hard for us to work from home. We all have laptops. We issued laptops to all of our employees in early March, late February, in anticipation that something like this might occur. So we've been serving our clients just like we always do, We're producing research, making recommendations, uh, following the results of the different um, recommended businesses that we track and endorse. We've put out a new portfolio to help investors, the forever portfolio that I mentioned, 40 stocks. Mm -hmm. uh, and really the opportunity to buy these businesses is very exciting for us. Obviously this isn't the way that we hoped that we'd be able to serve our customers. We would have much rather the bull market simply continue and, um, and for everyone to keep going to work. But we met the market where it was. And so um, luckily things for me have, have been very good and um, I have, I have young children. I've got a 12 year old and a nine year old and I've gotten to spend a lot more time with them, which has actually been very enjoyable. We bought a couple extra dirt bikes here for the farm. So we've, we've been teaching them how to ride motorcycles and uh, we've been doing a lot of hunting. I've killed, uh, I don't know, maybe a dozen foxes. I got to get you and Ted Nugent. We had him on last week. He loves to talk about hunting. I got to get you guys on at the same time, but uh, everyone should go check. I saw that that fox that my 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 son traveler got. Did you see how big it was? It, was, it looked like it looked like a like a like a tiger or something. It was huge. It was a big yeah, fox. It was, over, it was a fox. It was over twenty pounds. It looked like a coyote. It was. Yeah. I've never seen a one. So yeah, we've been actually having you know we've been having a lot of fun uh, here on the farm and uh, business is going very well for us. And again, this is not the way we would like to succeed. Um, but uh, it's when people when we have crises, people definitely need help with their finances. They need help to know what to do with their money, and we've been able to provide that information for them, fortunately, very successfully. Stansburyresearch.com is the site, folks. Go check out the Forever Portfolio. you got the founder here, the big man himself, Mr. Porter Stansbury, the guy who began it all. Porter, always great to talk to you. You stay safe, and uh, we'll be in touch. Okay, Buck. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Roll call time. But first, I want, to tell, I want to tell you guys all something. You know what I watched last night? Uh, I actually watched it with the Snow Princess because she was in the mood. She's like, can we watch? And I said, let, let, let's go for it. We watched the original Jaws movie, which I got to say, is just such a classic. It's great. When you really sit down and watch it, it's so well done. It holds up. It moves really well because they used... The I think his name was Hank is what they call them. The, you know, animatronic shark instead of a, a they didn't have CGI. So instead of a CGI shark, it just yeah, it doesn't look that real, but it looks real enough. And it's just much better the way they did it than if they had tried some kind of graphic imposition of a shark. 
Um, so I, I gotta say, producer Mark, you've obviously seen it, right? Yes, of course. I, I think it's one of the great, like, cinematic classics of all time for for enjoyment purposes. I'm not saying that it should have won all the Oscars or anything like that, but who cares about that? But if you're just looking for a great popcorn movie, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, and I'm I'm very upset at Universal for getting rid of the ride at uh, Universal Islands of Adventure, one of the one of the parks down in Orlando. It's gone. It's one of the best that. rides. Had you did you actually do that ride? Yeah, I did when I was a kid. I lived in Florida for a period of time and we would go on school trips up there. So uh, that was really fun and I love the Jaws ride. It's really fun. Yeah, and, and you know they they do some gr- there's some great stuff um, that they that they work into that script when they talk about the Matawan Creek uh, shark attacks of 1916, I think it is. Uh, you know there was the series of sharks. It's actually the Jersey. Do you know about this producer Mark um, on the Jersey Shore? I've, and I feel like I've heard of it. Yeah. In Ma- well, they they talk about it in they allude to it briefly in in um, in Jaws. And people say that it's really the inspiration. Moby Dick is obviously there's a lot of parallels. People say with Moby Dick, Captain Ahab is actually that guy Quinn. And but the the or the idea of a, a series of shark attacks shutting down a a seaside community. It happened in uh, in I believe it was 1916 or 1918 in Matawan Creek, New Jersey. They had four people, I think it was, who were attacked, and I think they all died uh, in a period of a couple of days from shark attacks and like right near each other. So there was a shark that was running wild, just eating people all over the place. They still, to this day, they think it might've been a bull shark because of the brackish water, you know, the mixture of salt, uh, salt water and fresh water in this Creek. And when you look at the photos of the Creek where people were attacked, it's like a little river through a town. You would never think that there was a man eating shark that could in a million years be in there. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Fun talk. Yes, very fun talk. Good story. Yeah, yeah. fun talk. Uh, all right, roll call. This is Mark's like, Buck, you talk enough. Why don't you let the people who write in, the kind people who take their time from Team Buck to write in. Usually it's just, oh, Bruce and Mark's great and he's so funny. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where do we go here? We Oh, here we go. Here we go. We have, starting us off, Terrence. Hey, Buck, wishing you the best from here in South Korea where you are a morning show. Oh, um, uh, I think that's close to saying, bless I think you. That's, I think that's hello. Um, so I was pretty close. I made a daily lister from back on the Saturday blaze days. I know there are a lot of factors determining success in the COVID battle. Not sure what the specific thing is that Korea is doing right, but the results speak for themselves to date. Shields high. Well, Terrence, first of all, it's great, man, to have some OSS here. And you're listening to me in South Korea. So this is truly a global show, which I appreciate. So thank you very much for that. Um, And uh, yeah, as to what South Korea is doing right, I I don't know. I mean, we're hearing that they have very high rates of testing. But I just also think that they have a tremendous amount of individual compliance in the society for the mitigation measures that we can all take. We all know this from cold season and flu season already. There are things you can do to make respiratory diseases less likely to spread. And if everybody does those things and really devotes themselves to those things, I think that the government's actions become far less necessary. And it's also much more likely that you'd be in a position to continue to have your economy open. Uh, But that's that's just how I that's how I view it. That's that's my take on it. Terrence. Oh, sorry, that was Terrence. Greg, hey, Buck, sounds like you cook a lot of steak. Life hack, melt some butter with garlic and grated Parmesan into a sort of sauce and pour it over your steak. You won't ever regret it. Best thing ever. 
Well, Greg, that does sound amazing. I will tell you something that I often do as a finish when I'm cooking a good steak is I will just, you know, once you've seared and you've gotten the meat to the right temperature, put it in the in the pan, preferably a cast iron, obviously, because we're civilized here. We use cast iron when we can on our meats. And you use that cast iron pan and you uh, you have built in heat in the pan. Put it on really low, medium heat because there's already going to be a lot of heat in the pan. And you throw in some herb uh, that you have. A thyme is a great option. You know, a little thyme, maybe a little parsley, sage. I love sage. I've been on kind of a sage kick lately. And and then you you throw in those herbs, and then you throw in a big pat of butter with it, and it'll effectively uh, fry the herbs right there in real time. And then you spoon that over the steak. So you have a, a, an herbed butter that's melted in real time, and you just throw it over the steak, and ooh, magnifique. I would throw some... Uh, grated parmesan into it but for me i'm just gonna say it i I like where your head's at greg and i respect the game that for me would be if i were working with maybe a less exciting cut of meat because i feel like the cheese would be a little strong for me and some people are going to disagree they're going to love that cheese on all their uh, producer producer mark are you are you a melted parmesan on your steak guy there's no wrong answer here it's not something i regularly do but i would definitely try it it sounds delicious i mean i'm sure it would taste good but butter on I, the steak is definitely the way to go oh 100 percent the way to go yeah you gotta i mean if you're already eating red meat you you gotta go big or go home and that's when you gotta use that the and the herbed butters are very nice and if you have the uh time there's a there's a there's a way to take the butter you know, you dice up your herbs very, very, uh, not, not dice, what do you, you mince them, I think is the proper term, or you cut them very finely, and then you roll them in with some cold butter, and you put it in the fridge, and you make your herbed butter beforehand, that's a very nice way to go, too, because then you take out that butter pat, and you put it on top of the steak when it's still really hot, and oof, it just melts into it, it's wonderful, um, I'm getting hungry. Peter Buck, still listening at work while protecting the grid in Catskill, thank you, Peter, frontline worker, shields high. I hope you and producer Mark are doing well. You ask, when will the testing be enough to fully open the country? November 5th. Uh, Well played, Peter. When they hope Donald Trump is no longer the president, then the cry will become, we must open now because Trump held up the economy and it's up to us, the libs. He didn't write that, but I'm saying it to save the American people. Stay healthy and safe. Uh, Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. And um, yeah, I, I, I think you're largely correct here i i share your analysis on this one so well done craig uh i'm a podcast and occasional am 1000 ksoo listener wonderful thank you so much craig i hate the fact that the federal government human resources terms of essential and non-essential have now been forced into our daily lexicon i hated these terms while managing department of army civilians during my career If during an emergency, a government employee is not needed for the functioning of the organization, then why do they have a job? If only essential work occurs during emergency situations, then what work is being accomplished by the majority of them most of the time? Now the state is using these unfair and illogical terms to divide the public sector. All jobs and businesses in the economy are essential and needed for this great nation to work. If we want to get these shut down over quicker, uh, shutdowns over quicker, furlough all non-essential government workers and not allow them to work from home and earn a paycheck, as is happening for many in the economy. Since the majority of federal civilian workforce is classified as non-essential, the outcry within the federal government would be deafening and one that politicians could not ignore. Keep up the good fight. Craig, excellent, excellent note. And I think you're right. If you had people who work for the government who were no longer drawing a paycheck and were not able to work from home, 
uh, if they were furloughed, any non-essential government employees, instead of getting paid, because right now my understanding is they're paid to be home and work from home. But if you're non-essential, why are you getting paid to work from home as a government employee, Craig is asking? It's an interesting point, isn't it? And it would put so much pressure, especially for state and municipal employees. Think about how annoyed they would get with this circumstance very quickly. Uh, it would change, folks. This is really a, a lot of this is about pressure points and the separation of those who are still getting paid and those who are not. And it, it is a it is a very meaningful difference whether or not you are getting paid right now. There's just no way around it. It, it does matter to people's perceptions of how serious this is, how severe this is. And there are way too many people out there, I think, who are loud voices on this issue who just think that there's not really a massive co a cost or consequence to continuing as we are because it hasn't been that consequential for them yet. Although eventually it will be consequential for everybody, especially in the private sector. In the public sector, it takes longer because they just rely on the government to pay them with the printed money. But for people that have to actually be productive, uh, we will see sooner than later what the real consequences of this can be. Uh, and a lot of us are already feeling it. Um, you know, we we are feeling it in media. I can tell you that at least some of us are. It's this is not fun. Um, financially speaking, I mean, I can't get into details, but this is not a not a good time uh, for for media in general. But more specifically, you know, conservative media, because we run so much on on ads and on economic activity. You know, this show only works because you guys all try out our sponsors. Well, if people are buying less stuff. Uh, that that hurts the economic model of, of all talk radio, of, of all the different platforms out there. So, you know, yeah, I'm still working, but uh, it's it's tough out there, folks. It's tough for us, too. Don't think it's not. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right. More roll call here. Tim writes, Buck. Pence should wear a mask at all times. He is our only buffer between us and insanity. If something were to happen to Trump, President Pelosi makes me ill to even type it. Uh, well, Tim, I, I appreciate that you want to keep our our very esteemed and and really, really an exceptional person. Our vice president's a good guy. I appreciate that you want to keep him um, you know, keep him as healthy as possible. I certainly agree with that. I think the I think the vice president given who he's around and what he's dealing with every day, probably has a pretty darn good sense of what is necessary for keeping him healthy and safe in the game. Um, but I, I hear you on that. We, we need Pence staying strong, staying healthy. And uh, same thing with our president, man. Trump is, this guy is going through hell right now as president. I mean, you can only imagine. It went from things that were in his control uh, we're going so well, you know, the economy was so strong. You got to understand this is his life's work, right? This is his the crowning achievement of this guy's entire uh, entire career, which has been a pretty remarkable one at that. And he's doing such a good job. And then this happens. I mean, this is like, you know, you're, you're showing up to uh, you're showing up to sign the deal of a lifetime and you get struck by lightning on the way. And you're just like, how does this happen, man? This is terrible. So he's obviously very tired, and I think he's particularly grumpy during some of those press conferences, which I, I can understand. I can understand that. But he's particularly tired and grumpy during the press conferences, and uh, I get it. You know, I can only imagine how challenging that is. But Trump staying healthy during all this is so important, too. Obviously, keeping him 
free of COVID-19, but just also not getting run down with other health issues. I mean, the guy's going through it's it's tough right now. Think of the weight that he carries on his shoulders every day and all the all the libs like a bunch of hyenas lurking in the background, just waiting to pounce on any mistake that he makes. Michael writes, daily listener, love your insight. Keep up the good work. We are listening in Texarkana, Texas. Oh, Michael, thank you so much. And great to have some uh, Texarkana support. And uh, we, we appreciate it. And like I said, guys, please do check out BuckSexton.com. That's our website. We've got stories posting every day. Things from this show go up there. Extras, all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, BuckSexton.com. That's where you go. And uh, please do continue to stop in, bookmark it, and tell people about the podcast for the Buck Sexton Show. Oh, if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel as well, start watching us on YouTube. YouTube.com slash BuckSexton. So that's another thing we want to keep going and growing. Guile. Hey, Buck. Last day of work for my crew. We build aircraft parts and the future is bleak. You and Mark stay safe there at Ground Zero and keep your shield high. We'll be listening and keeping my powder dry. You stay safe. Well, Guile, I'm sorry to hear about the, the slowdown in your work, but man, I, I'm, aircraft parts, this will, it will come back. It's going to come back. It's just going to take some time. But I know that right now, right now, that's not really a whole lot of comfort given that you got bills to pay and a family to take care of. And I, I know it's tough. I mean, Boeing is looking at huge layoffs from what I understand. I mean, the airline industry, how's that going to come back? It's going to come. You know how it comes back? I'll be honest with you. It's when people feel like, you know what? I got to fly and I'm going to go on. Maybe I wear a surgical mask on the plane, but I'm going to fly and I'm going to take that risk. And I think it's important and, and I'm healthy enough that I can handle this. And once the once that mentality becomes widespread, then I think you'll start to see the airline industry make a real comeback. Jake writes, good day, Buckman. At your recommendation, I recently read The Guns of August, which led me to read a few other books about World War I. The scale and misery and loss of life from that war is just staggering. But compared to our societal expectations today, it is clear that the acceptance of necessary risk in those days was orders of magnitude higher. Too high, one could argue. I could go on, but to sum it up, I think our society and government are showing themselves to be excessively risk-averse Perhaps paradoxically, we have become fatally risk averse. Well, Jake, first of all, I'm glad you're enjoying the Guns of August. It's a great read. It's a sort of a timeless overview of the or the opening, I should say, of the First World War, the opening uh, month uh, of the First World War in particular of the actual conflict. And as for your fatally risk averse comment, it reminds me of Professor Ioannidis uh, from uh, the University of uh, Stan or Stanford University, who was saying that we're becoming like an elephant that trying to escape a mouse falls off a cliff. Well, that's a similar idea to what you're talking about here. And he's an epidemiologist and esteemed one who's saying that we're acting like this is a bigger threat for us than it, than it really is. So um, there you have it, Michael Buck. I usually jump at the vote, a uh, jump at the chance to vote for a libertarian. So will I vote for Justin Amash? No, absolutely not. After how he's been acting in the past couple of years, I wouldn't vote for him to be my congressman either. Shields high. Yeah, I don't know what happened to Amash, but he he went over to the he went over to the bad guy team. And it's a shame to see that happen, but I think it's uh I think it's where we are, my friend. I, I I'm not not impressed is putting it mildly. That's my impression of, of how he's doing. Terry writes, hey Buck. Why do the libs call the president's daily COVID-19 briefing stupid, but not Governor Cuomo's? I think I know the answer. Well, Terry, you do know the answer. 
It's politics. There's nothing behind it other than that. It's a shame that the libs will not put aside their uh, political gripes during this very difficult time where we all really should be banding together and counting on each other to make decisions that are best for the country. But liberalism is a, uh, especially in the era of Trump, is a, is a disorder. Uh, that's it for today, folks. BuckSexton.com is the website. Make sure you tell somebody this week, please do me a favor. Tell somebody to download the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can listen to it. And we'll be back tomorrow, same time and place. Shields high.